All right, good morning. How are we doing? We good? All right, okay. It's a little weak. I got my work out. You got scolded earlier about singing. Uh, rightfully so. We got good news to sing about. My name is Jake. Uh, I'm one of the pastors down at our Cedar Rapids campus. It's good to be with you. Last week, we started our series uh, looking at the life of Christ. We're going to spend the bulk of our summer looking at the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is our King, our Savior, our leader, and it is essential for people that follow Jesus to know about Jesus and to know how he lived. And a lot, a lot of times when we look at Jesus Christ, his birth and death are very familiar with people. Like we got Christmas and Easter down. Like we, we understand the birth of Jesus. We understand the death of Jesus. But there is a whole life lived in between the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we need to be vastly familiar with if we're going to be good followers of him. What did he do? How did he live? What did he teach? Um, what is he calling us to do? So we want to take a look at the life of Jesus Christ, uh, hopefully to improve ourselves as followers of Jesus. Because the concern... Um, is for us is that you can have a lot of followers of Jesus that don't really have a good grasp on Jesus. Like just, you're, you're kind of Christian in name only. Um, you're cultural Christians. You come to church. You kind of, if somebody, if you had to fill out a survey and you had to mark your religion, you would check Christianity, but you don't really know the person of Jesus Christ. Um, that, that you're just kind of not very familiar with who he is at all. Um, and that is a very dangerous thing. In fact, uh, I think one of the scariest passages in all of the Bible is found in Matthew chapter 7, uh, where Jesus says to people that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, wait, what? Like, that's some good theology. They looked at Jesus and said, Lord. He's like, yeah, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, is that not terrifying? Like, I think that should rustle some of us. It's like, does that apply to me? Like, I, I could look at Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, would I hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you? And we should be a bit startled by that in, in a way to like, let's lean in. Who is this real biblical Jesus and are we authentic followers of him? Because that is our passion. If you're going to make Veritas Church your home, one of the things that we said, okay, then we really don't want to just go through the motions. We actually want to be followers of Jesus Christ. We want to challenge each other to do that. We want to uplift him and worship him as king. We want to live out our lives for him. Like, we're just not going to play games here. Like, so if you're just like, I just want a place to go to church, eventually you'll feel really uncomfortable here. And you'll be like, those people are kind of mean. No, we care about people's holiness and godliness. And we say, we really want to follow Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at in this series. You know that word Christian? It was first used in Acts chapter 11. Um, the, the followers of Jesus did not like get together and like have a branding meeting of like, what should we call ourselves? Uh, other people, unbelievers started calling the, calling the followers of Jesus Christians, probably in a very derogatory way. Um, but it stuck. We embraced it like, yeah, cause the word means little anointed ones or little Christ. It's like, oh, you follow Christ. You're like the little Christ. You're like, that's who we are. So we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, are we like little Jesuses? Are we little, are we, do we reflect our leader well? Because that's the heart, uh, the cry of our heart. We want to reflect our savior well. And our hope in this series is to get a closer look at Jesus for these reasons. One, just to fall more in love with Jesus. Like how, how beautiful the savior do we have? How precious and amazing is Jesus Christ. Like we want to deepen our affections for Jesus Christ as a church. But two, we also want to take a closer look at Jesus so that we can be better followers of him. Um, how many here would say, and you're at church, so don't lie, um, but I'm expecting some hand raised. How many would say like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a closer follower of Jesus. Okay. How many would say like, I want my spouse to be a closer follower of Jesus. Yeah. 
Instead of me, he's like, oh, I'm not good enough for you. That was kind of an awkward thing. Like, no, how many of you say, I want my kids to be a closer follower of Jesus? Yeah, we want that. Like, we're kind of this shared passion. Like, we want to be better, closer followers of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you that Jesus warned people like you. I'll say us because I'm in that camp too. Like, people warned people, uh, Jesus warned people like us. Because he's like, oh, you, you want to follow me? You better count the cost. Do you know what you're asking? Like you don't start to build a house and then find out you don't have the material to do it. Or you don't go to war and find out you don't have the soldiers to win. Like, if you really want to follow me, you better count the cost. And there was kind of this warning. And you'd think Jesus would be like, yeah, anybody come follow me. But he's like, no, you better pump the brakes. Are you sure you know what you're asking? Do you sure you know what you want? And he gave a warning uh, to, to people like us. And I feel like I need to warn you as we dig into the life of Christ, your domesticated version of Jesus may get ruined. As we look at this biblical Jesus and who he is and how he lived and what he calls us to, um, that we want to follow him. So last week, Matthew started this off with looking at the birth of Jesus. And today we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. Now, I know that baptism uh, is a little bit of a weird practice. If you didn't grow up in church world, uh, maybe a friend invited you to church. Um, Urbana's had one or two baptism services. Yeah, we've had one bap- two baptism services. Like if your first Sunday here was at a baptism service and you, grow, you come here and you see like grown adults getting in a, a ca- cattle trough of water to be dunked under uh, and everybody cheers, you're like, this is a cult. This is weird. Uh, it's just kind of an odd practice uh, that we do. Now in the New Testament, we know of no unbaptized believer except the thief on the cross who's not like an example to follow, okay? So I'm saying if you're a believer in Jesus, you should get baptized. If you have not been baptized, we would encourage you uh, to be obedient in being baptized. And the reason I say obedient is because it's commanded in Scripture. You're like, I don't really know if I make sense of it. It doesn't matter. It's commanded. It's a clear command in Scripture. Uh, It it was... um, uh, it's a part of our mission. Like we're given the great commission to go uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's part of our mission. It was a part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus went around with his disciples, and they were baptizing people. And Jesus himself got baptized, in which we're going to look at today. Uh, but this is not a talk about baptism. This is a talk about Jesus' baptism and what we can learn about following Jesus through his baptism. Uh, and to answer that question, we need to start with John the Baptist. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to look. This is the account of Jesus' baptism. But before we get to the act of Jesus' baptism, we get this description of John the Baptist and his ministry. And we have to understand John the Baptist and his ministry to kind of better understand why is Jesus getting baptized and what can we learn about this as we're trying to be followers of him. Because the application is not just Jesus got baptized, you should get baptized. It's deeper than that. We want to understand it. So Matthew chapter 3. You guys ready to go? All right. This was so much better than last time. We're already improving. This is great. So I feel like you got to talk to me. I'm talking to you. Let's do this. All right. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is an important pause. I just wanted to point this out. John's, bap- or his, John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. And what that means is his kind of message to everybody was knock it off. <laughs> change. Stop doing the bad you're doing and turn and start doing better. How popular do you think that's going to be? Like he's just out there calling people out. That's kind of the, the core of his ministry. And then it goes on. It says this verse three, for this is who 
was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist had this unique ministry of preparing people for Christ's first coming. The Messiah's coming. I'm trying to wake you people up. You need to get ready. You need to be prepared for, for his coming. Uh, and he's just out in the wilderness kind of proclaiming this message, turn, because the Messiah is coming. Like he's getting them ready for the first coming of Jesus. And similar to John the Baptist, Christians today, we're trying to prepare people for Jesus' second coming. Like I would look at 2 Corinthians 5 when we're called ambassadors for Christ. Part of our, like we're, we're imploring people be reconciled to God that in Christ Jesus, God is not counting their sins against them. Like is that not great news? All right, so that's our job. That's our call to do that. You're like, how do you prepare people for Jesus' second coming? Well, we just got done going through the book of Revelation. What happens at Jesus' second coming? Judgment. How do you prepare people for judgment? You implore them, be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. He's not counting their sins against him. So we're kind of this crazy people crying out in the wilderness too. Like, hey, there's going to be a time when time's up. And we're pleading with you, like, take the deal. God is coming with an angel army. He's stronger than you. He's going to win. Uh, I would recommend coming under his sovereign rule, repenting, being reconciled. Like, well, this is our call. Well, John is out here saying, hey, the Messiah is coming. You better repent. You, you better get ready. You better recognize this king, this Messiah. So here's what happens. Verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. So that's John, kind of an odd character. And I'll just tell you, sometimes um, we can paint these pictures of godly people like they're very uh, proper and they fit into every context and they're just, just a really nice guy. But John the Baptist was a character. Like he's dressed in camel hair. He's got a leather belt. He's got locusts and honey still in his beard from the morning's breakfast. Like, and he's got a wilderness ministry. Like he's not like, you know, you, you don't take him to the club. Like he, he's go, you got to go out to the woods to hear from John. Like you got to go to him and he's just kind of this, he says like he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He's kind of like Elijah. Like they shared the same wardrobe. That's how Elijah dressed. Just kind of guys that don't really fit in, but they're not looking to fit in. They got this important message that they're out to proclaim. And John is this unique character um, that's kind of an odd person, but he has a very powerful ministry. Look at verse uh, five, five and six. Here he goes. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, like, crowds are coming out to him. Uh, all the region is kind of like, well, let's go out to hear what this John character is saying. And not only are they going out to listen, people are responding to his call to repentance. And you read this, and you're like, Really? They're responding to that? Like this kind of crazy guy wearing camel hair, just yelling at people? Like this is what they're responding to? And it kind of reminds me of like Jonah's message to Nineveh. Like he marched through the city like 40 days and God's going to destroy you. And what happens? You know their Old Testament? Right, Nineveh, they repent. And you read that and like, really? That, that message clicked on? Like, hey, you got 40 days and God's going to destroy you. And they repent. Or uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, he basically gives everybody a verbal spanking. He's like, um, Christ Jesus is the, is the king whom you crucified. Remember him? You killed him. Like he was the king. And they're like, 
cut to the heart and like, oh, what should we do? And it almost takes you back like, oh, you responded to that? And you see this like powerful work of the Holy Spirit in John's ministry and those other two examples of like just truth being proclaimed and people responding to the truth. But here's what is unique about John's message. He's telling Jewish people to repent and be baptized. Now the repentance part, like you get that, but the baptism part is really weird of like, why would you tell Jewish people to be baptized? Now let me give you some background of baptism, better understand that baptism was just like a ceremonial washing. Um, the word, the Greek word baptizo, uh, just means to dip, to dunk, to wash. It's a very common word. Uh, you could find the word in ancient pickle rep- recipes, like you got to baptize the cucumber. Um, sometimes in the New Testament, it, it gets translated as wash, and sometimes it gets translated as baptize. And what they did is they took a, a normal Greek word, and they just they didn't translate it. They transliterated it. So they just gave an English word for the Greek word. So we get this kind of, like, this. it's special. It's meaningful. Like, it wasn't wrong that they did that. They're trying to say there's something special going on. But when was this washing taking place? Well, it was a practice. If you were uh, a Jewish person, or excuse me, if you were a Gentile person living in this time period, let's say you worked in the market uh, and you worked next to a Jewish person and you guys struck up a relationship, you became friends, and it's like you worship Zeus and Aphrodite and all these Greek gods, and you start having lunchtime conversations with your Jewish friend, and you come to this conclusion, like, I think you're right. I think Yahweh is God. I think there's just one true God, um, and I've been reading the Torah, and I think I want to become Jewish. Can I do that? And your Jewish friend is like, let me check with my rabbi. Right? And then he comes back and he's like, okay, here's what you got to do. One, uh, you got to be circumcised. You're like, okay, let me, let me wrestle with that one. Uh, but come, what else do I have to do? It's like, all right, you got to read and follow the Torah, check, all right? And you have to be baptized. You have to be washed. You have to do this ceremonial washing. And what it symbolizes is when you go into this tank by yourself, you dip yourself underwater and you come out and you're saying, I went in Gentile, I came out Jewish. Like it was this symbol of your conversion. So why is John the Baptist telling Jewish people they need to be baptized? That's the odd part. Like what, what is he calling them to? And if you look at verse 9 and 10, he says this, And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham... As our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. He's saying, listen, you can't just count on your ethnicity for your salvation. You can't put your hope in the wrong things. God doesn't have grandkids. Like, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He hasn't got to Jesus yet. But do you believe in God? Are you personally turning from your sins and following God as your, as your Lord? Like, that's what he's calling them to. Like, don't rest on the wrong things. Don't put your hope in the wrong things. He's saying you need to have this kind of personal, public kind of conversion where you're trusting in God. And he's not pulling any punches when he's talking to him. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? It's like, what? And then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he's calling them to repent. Like he's not rejecting them, but the way that he's welcoming them is like, who told you to come out here, you brood of vipers? Like, can you imagine 
if Matthew is up here preaching and, and a group that's kind of known to be antagonistic to the gospel just comes walking in the back ready to visit. He stops mid-sermon. He's like, who invited you idiots here? Did anybody have a problem with that? Sweet, we'll start, man. Let's, let's go. Let's just be honest, right? But he just kind of had this like bold, like, who, you brood of vipers, you morons who invited you. Like he just kind of, just kind of brashly addresses them. And it kind of takes you back. It's like, wow, what, what is he saying? Now, listen, this is the point I want to make here because I think we need to learn this. Don't reduce Christianity down to just be a knife. You hear me that? Like, don't reduce Christianity down to just being nice. And there's all those people like, oh, are they a Christian? I don't know. Nicest guy you've ever met, though. Listen to me. Nice people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Don't, don't reduce Christianity down to just being nice. And the problem with thinking that oh, it's just about being nice and being kind is the numerous examples of biblical heroes that would not our, fit our expectations of social niceness. Like, there's tons of examples. A few we pointed out before is like um, in Isaiah 44, like the Bible uses sarcasm. The Bible uses humor. The Bible uses mockery. Um, and Isaiah is writing, uh, addressing an idolatrous people that work, like they make wooden statues for their house and they worship. And he's like, here's the trick. You guys cut down a log and you use half of it to heat your homes and cook your food. And the other half you turn into a god. How do you know which half is the deity? Like he's just kind of like pointing, like mocking them. Like you guys really, you got this down to a sign. You must have gone to college for this. Like you know which half of the log is a god and which has to cook your food. Like he's making fun of them. It's funny. It's Isaiah 44. You should read it. There's another passage in Amos uh, chapter 4 where he's addressing some sinful women and he calls them cows of Bashan. Now, there is no culture where that is a compliment. Okay. So he's just looking at these women. He's like, you bunch of cows of Bashan. That's who you are. Like, and then you think, oh, that's funny until he's talking to you, right? That's where it's like, he's calling people out in their sin. And he's like, what? He used some really brash language there. And you're just like, boy, that's, that's Old Testament stuff though. Like in New Testament, we've, we've so evolved from that. Like we're, we're much more, you know, filled with love, right? Well, you, let's look at Paul in Galatians. Uh, Paul starts this church and he's addressing the Galatians and he has these false teachers coming in to kind of lead them astray, uh, telling them they need to be circumcised if they really want to be the people of God. And what does Paul do? He's like, I wish that those people that are telling you to be circumcised would just castrate themselves. That's what he says. Hey, if you think circumcision makes you holy, why don't you become extra holy then? Just keep cutting. That's what he says. And you read that and you're just like, I don't know if I like his tone. <laughs> I don't think that sounds too loving right? Like we're kind of, you know, we're taken back by that. And you're like, well, we're just trying to be like Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, let's go to Jesus. What did Jesus like? Uh, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is in this kind of um, debate with the, the Pharisees about washing your hands. And he's calling them hypocrites. Like he's, he's straight up name calling. He's like, well, that's so childish. Jesus did it. Okay. Jesus is calling them hypocrites. He's addressing it. And afterwards, the, his disciples come up to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, master, I don't know if you caught on to this, but uh, they were offended. <laughs> he's like, you think? <laughs> he's just like, that was the point. Like he's trying to, and he says, let them alone. Let them be offended. They're supposed to be offended. The way they're living is offensive. Their, their viewpoint is offensive to the gospel. So I meant to offend them. 
And we do, we look at that sometimes as like, I don't know if that fits into our box of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The problem is it's exactly what following Jesus can look like. That he lived differently and he was bold in that. And I know kindness is part of the fruit of the spirit, but if we think the examples of the prophets of old and the apostle Paul and John the Baptist and Jesus himself don't fit with the spirit's expression of kindness, then I would say we have a very secularized view of kindness. And what we think of kindness is, is just don't offend anybody. No matter what, you just be nice to everybody all the time. But the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is not the opposite of boldness and honesty and confronting sin and falsehood. Because Christianity is not about just not offending people. And it seems like the greatest offense today is, could, is offending somebody. Like, be nice has become the 11th commandment that we think is the highest commandment. That we just need to be nice. And that is a secularized moralization of Christianity. Maybe if we just be nice, that someday they'll just give their life to Christ. Just keep being nice. But you look at Jesus and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul and the Old Testament prophets, and they were disruptors. They were disruptors with the truth. Now, let me say this. This isn't permission just to be confrontational or combative. All right? If you have a neighbor or a coworker leaning into the gospel, you don't start throwing haymakers and just feel all bold that you're like, well, I told them the truth. It's like, no. That's not what it's calling. But it is a call to faithfulness and courage no matter the social cost. That we can't take away the offense of the gospel. Even in the passage in Galatians 5 where Paul's getting kind of rough with the false teachers. He's saying there's an offense of the cross. If you take that away, if you take the offensive part away, you distort the gospel. The gospel is offensive. Because it says, you are not okay just the way you are. You are a sinner, and you have offended a holy God, and you justly deserve hell forever. That's the first part of the gospel. But God, rich in his mercy, through Jesus Christ, is not counting your sins against you. We implore you, be reconciled to God. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is good news that is offensive to sinful people. And Christians are to be proclaimers of the gospel in a sinful world. We're to proclaim the gospel to people that need it. And there is an offense of the cross. Now, stay with me because there is a connection to baptism. Look at verse 11. It says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What John the Baptist is saying, like, listen, if you think I'm being harsh right now, that's only because something more terrible than me comes after me. And I'm trying to wake you up and get you ready to deal with this. Like, stop going through the religious motions. Stop feeling like you can check the box because you showed up or you came out to your message or you gave some alms or some tithes. Like, I'm trying to, like, wake you up to the realities of judgment. It is coming. And if I got to use some sharp words to get your attention and wake you up then so be it. You, go, you don't have to put my picture on your refrigerator when you go home. I don't care if you like me, but you need to be ready for the coming Messiah. So he's like, he, this is the way he's throwing some, and sometimes when you're in a fight, you got to throw some punches. 
And he's throwing some punches. And when there's deceptive lies, it needs pointed truth. And John is bringing it, but he's bringing it because he knows what's at stake. And it's born out of love. I'm trying to get through to you. You need to see that you are a brood of vipers. You are a liar in desperate need of repentance. Like if I gotta wake you up with my words because I know what's coming next. And he's calling him. And then what comes next is Jesus. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Now that's why we had to talk about John. Because he went to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So there was this little argument between Jesus and John. Jesus was like, hey, I'm here to be baptized. John's like, no, you should baptize me. I should baptize you. Jesus like, no, you need to baptize me. Jesus won the argument. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is where we get to it. Jesus is not getting baptized because he is a sinner needing to repent. So why is he getting baptized? Well, to understand that, we have to have a fuller understanding of baptism. Listen, there is more to it than just a symbol of salvation and forgiveness. And sometimes we reduce baptism down to just kind of that expression, and we miss all that needs to be communicated in the act of baptism. So here's what's going on in Jesus getting baptized, or John's baptism, and what's being proclaimed here. Three things. One, it's a public and personal endorsement of the gospel. So John is proclaiming the gospel. You can't rest on your ethnicity for your salvation. You need personal repentance. And you just not need to be baptized by me. You need to be baptized by the one who comes after me with the Spirit. And if you look at this account in the book, Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to get baptized, anybody know what he says? He looks at me and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You need Jesus is what he's saying. So when people would go get baptized by John, they're saying, I agree with what John's saying. I shouldn't rest on my ethnicity to save me. I need personal repentance and I need the Messiah to baptize me with the spirit to forgive me of my sins. Like that's what he's calling them to. So it's this public and personal endorsement of the gospel. And when Jesus gets baptized by John, what he's saying is John is right. I am the lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. And I agree with his message. You should not rest on your ethnicity, but you need to rest uh, on the Messiah and the salvation he will bring. Number two, it's a public association of a new community. So when people would get baptized by John, they're saying, I'm with, I'm with these people. These people that are they're associating themselves with John, um, that's what Jesus, he's like, hey, I'm with John too. I'm a part of this group that is proclaiming this message. And then the third thing that's getting proclaimed, it's a public inauguration of a new lifestyle. So remember, John's, the core of his message was repentance. He's calling people to repent. You get a better look at that in Luke chapter 3. Um, This is what he says. And the crowds asked him, John the Baptist, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he 
asked him, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So all these people are being baptized. They're like, all right, what are we to do now? He's like, live out your repentance. Live it out. So when Jesus gets baptized, it actually kicks off his public ministry. It's the beginning of his, of his life uh, in, in public ministry. Or there's a, there's a clue in our text. He's, he says, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Like, that's why he's doing it. What he's saying is we need to do this to fulfill God's righteous act of salvation that is being fulfilled in and through Jesus. And he is stepping into that. This is why I came. And this is the, the inauguration or the launch point of my public ministry. And all three of those things get proclaimed every time that we do baptisms. When somebody gets in the tank, they're, they're professing a personal proclamation of the gospel. I am a sinner. I need Jesus as my Savior. I can't rest on anything else. I need him to fill me and save me. It's also a proclamation of a new association. I'm with these people that are called Christians. I'm, I'm a part of this local body that says we're following Jesus together. And it is the inauguration of a new lifestyle. You, you, you died to yourself, you're risen new with Christ to live for Christ in your life. All of those things are getting proclaimed in baptism. But again, this isn't a talk about baptism. This is a talk about Jesus' baptism and what we can learn about Jesus through his baptism in order to better follow him. So Jesus got baptized. And he got baptized by John the Baptist, this controversial, radical leader that the religious leaders hated and a local politician eventually executed. What does that tell us about Jesus? And I want us to kind of emotionally uh, relate to this event because baptism is such a religious church thing to do. We could just read through this so quickly and not get the punch in the gut that happens here or we can't emotionally connect with it. So imagine you were going to work and and outside your work, uh, a kind of a really messed up uh, funny looking guy who's, you know, just not really well put together, grabs a soapbox, stands on it, and just starts yelling at people. <laughs> you know, turn or burn, flip or fry, meet your maker or your baker. Like he's just delivering the message. He's calling people out. He's calling sinners to repent. And a crowd gathers. And you go up to him, shake his hand, and say, I'm with this guy. Can you imagine doing that? Because that's kind of what Jesus did. Like that really sets him apart from the comfortable, kind of fit into the crowd. Like he associated with this character of John the Baptist. Listen, Jesus was not embarrassed to express obedience against power. He was faithful even when it wasn't popular. Now, in one sense, John the Baptist was very popular. Like, people were coming all out to be baptized by him. He had a very, very prominent ministry. Um, but, but they weren't the cool kids. That's what I'm saying. They're not the cool. These aren't like the religious leaders and the politics. These aren't the people making decisions. This wasn't an, an attractive ministry to the cool kids. And it's one thing to like Jesus when you kind of cherry pick sociable, acceptable parts of Jesus. Love your enemies. Help the poor. Like, who's going to be against that? But Jesus associated with John the Baptist. Would you? Let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with wanting to be liked and fit in? And, and like, on one sense, like, well, who doesn't? Right? Anyway, who doesn't want to be liked and fit in? But do you find yourself really struggling with it? 
Like, I just want them to like me. I want them to fit in. I want to be accepted. I want their approval. I want to hit like buttons on my pictures. I want, like, I just really need people's approval. Is that a struggle? Or let me put it this way. Are there times that you have downplayed your Christianity in order to better fit in? This is what we have to come to terms with. If you want to follow Jesus, wanting to be liked and following Jesus don't go together. They don't go together. Like you're either going to kind of cave to the social pressures to better fit in with those around you and find their approval, or you'll find yourself standing as a sojourner and an exile, different, holy, set apart in a sinful world for your king. Like there's so many situations throughout your day that you're at those crossroads. And Jesus was not embarrassed to express his obedience even when it wasn't popular. And even when it was against power, it was unique to following Jesus. And this temptation to just fit in, to be liked, can be just as damaging to our closeness to God, your effectiveness as a witness, and your joy as outright immorality. And we don't see it because we're like, I didn't do anything. And you're like, exactly. You didn't do anything. But I didn't say anything. I know. You didn't say anything. And salt can lose its saltiness. And then what it's good for? To be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's quoting Jesus. Listen, church, this desire to be liked has been our kryptonite. It has. It's been, it's been the kryptonite for the people of God from the beginning. Do, do you guys get the reference when I say Kryptonite. We're all good Americans. Like, we know Superman, right? Superman, like, superhuman powers. He can fly. He can shoot lasers out his eyes. He can run through brick buildings, x-ray vision. Like, he's Superman. But you put this green rock in his lap, and he's like, I can't even walk. Like, he just kind of melts. Like, he just becomes weak. When, When you look at the people of God, they escaped one of the biggest world powers in human history as slaves who were vastly outnumbered. They parted a Red Sea and walked through on dry land. They conquered a land when they didn't even have any weapons. They marched around a city seven times with a trumpet and the walls came crumbling down. Like this is like supernatural power. Who could ever stop the people of God? Kryptonite. And you know what their kryptonite was? We want to be like other nations. We want a king like other nations. We want to marry the women of other nations. We want to worship the gods of other nations. And they just became weak. It destroys us when we're called to be holy and set apart and different from the beginning. Here's, if you're a note taker, this is what I want you to remember. Following Jesus is embracing different. Following Jesus is embracing different. Like if you follow Jesus practically, it's going to mean you're going to talk different. It's going to mean that you'll probably dress different. It's going to mean that you're going to entertain yourself differently. It's going to mean you're going to carry yourself differently. It's going to mean you're going to handle money differently. It's going to mean you're just going to spend your time differently. It sets you apart. And following Jesus is embracing that difference. It's like, oh yeah, I don't have to fit in. 
I don't have to know all about that TV show. I don't have to dress like that. I don't have to talk like that. I'm different. I'm, why am I different? I'm following Jesus. Like following Jesus is embracing different. In his baptism, Jesus makes this public statement of his faithfulness to God, even when it wasn't popular. Even when it fit with the powers to be. And guys, listen, it's easy for me to stand up here and like, get a backbone, right? Have some courage, be different. But it's easier said than done. I mean, we, how do we actually live this out? Who who doesn't want to be liked? It's hard. We face it every day. We're entrenched in a social media culture where it's just, I want followers. I want to be liked. I want people to like my pictures. I want, we go to work and it's like, I want to make friends. And we just feel like there's such this pull to fit in all the time. So how do we actually live this out? Like what truths could help us rise above this? Are there any clues in this text that would help us see that? It's a great Bible study question. And there is. So verse 15 Go back to there. Or we'll start with 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Guys, Jesus didn't need the approval of crowds because he had the approval of his Father. You see that? He knew he was loved. He didn't need the approval of the crowds. He had the approval of his father. And he wasn't trying to get this, win a popularity contest. He wasn't trying to fit in. He wasn't trying to be like, he was trying to be faithful. He was trying to be obedient. He's like, this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, to do what my father sent me to do. He was out for obedience and he was out to please his father. So if we had to like tweak that big idea, here's here's what I'd add to it. Following Jesus is embracing different for the pleasing of God. Like that's your motive. Like we don't just embrace different to be different. Everybody wants to be different. We're, we're, we're different because we want to please God. That's what sets us apart. So we're not out just to be different. We're out to please God. And if pleasing God leads us to be different, so be it. If pleasing God leads us to not fit in, so be it. But our passion, our motivation is to bring pleasure to God, to be obedient to God. And listen, I, I remember, I, I'm not that old. Like what it's like to be a kid or a high school student or a college student who's just like, I just want to fit in. And, and guess what, students, that doesn't go away when you get older. Like as adults, we go to work and it's like, I want to be liked. I want to have their approval. And sometimes as parents, we have this urge, like, I just want my kid to have friends. I want them to fit in. I want them to be like. I want it to go well. But if we want them to follow Jesus, maybe we ought to help our kids be very comfortable not fitting in. Maybe we ought to help them be comfortable being different. There's a passage in Mark chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. Well, this is what it says. Mark 12, 14. And they came and said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So this is what they observed about Jesus. We've been watching you. And here's what we conclude. You don't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> like how awesome and freeing is that? Like there is a certain type of bondage 
to like, I, I need you to like me. I need your approval. I, I, I need your acceptance. Like that is, a, that is a type of slavery. That is a type of bondage. And when they view Jesus, like here's things that we've noticed about you. You don't need anybody to like you. You don't care what anybody thinks. You're just out here to teach the truth of God. And you're so free from this burden of having approval and acceptance. How cool would it be if that could be said of us? Well, here's what we've noticed about the people of Veritas. Like, you are committed to the truth of God, and you don't care what anybody thinks. Like, you are free from this need of approval and acceptance from other people. Because, guys, I'm telling you, following Jesus is not just this private matter that you just keep between yourself and God, and you just try to fit in the rest of the week. Following Jesus is taking public stance, speaking truth, proclaiming the gospel, raising your hand in class, saying something unpopular in a work meeting. Uh, And I'm not telling you that it's going to go well. I mean, Jesus was executed. All 12 of his disciples were martyred. I'm not telling you it's going to go well. You, You may get laughed at. You may not get the promotion. You may not get invited to the party. It may not go well. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's following Jesus. And following Jesus doesn't always go well, but it always ends well. Believer, if you were baptized, your baptism was more than just saying you're going to go to heaven someday. Your baptism was a proclamation to live for him all the way until that day. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Pleasing God is often against the popularity of the world. It's the narrow road. You're a sojourner. You're in exile. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we're saying, embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace being different for pleasing God. But hear me now, Christian. This is good news. This isn't just a challenge of like, come on, buck up, have some courage, be different. Listen to me, this is good news. You don't need other people's approval. You have the approval of God through Jesus Christ, his son. You get that? Like, look look at me. If you're still taking notes, just look at me for one second. I want you to hear this. You don't need to be liked. You're loved by the king of the universe. Now, we look at the story and it could be like, well, yeah, if the clouds parted and the Spirit of God descended upon me and a voice from heaven declared, this is my boy, this is my girl, this is my people, like, I love you, I'm pleased with you, that would probably be helpful, would it not? But can we think of anywhere in Scripture where God has so publicly declared his love for you? Romans 5, 8. God declares his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, you get this public declaration of God saying, I love you. I got you. You're mine. I bought you. I paid for you. Do you get, like when you think of the bleeding, broken, suffering Jesus Christ, can you grasp how much you are loved? And isn't that freeing from that burden of wanting to be liked and approved by everybody? 
So church, when you celebrate communion, we're reminded of Christ's body was pierced, and his blood that was shed. I hope that you'd be reminded of how amazing you are loved. But in a way that breathes courage into you. Courage to live for him no matter the cost. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you set us free from this this bondage of wanting to be liked and wanting to fit in and wanting people's approval. And like Jesus, we could be just living out a passion to please you. And if pleasing you means not fitting in or being different, so be it. So be it. But we would have a courage to know that we can go against the flow of this world because we are loved by you. I pray that that would be true of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.